Hi, I'm Alicia. And I'm Robin. And you're listening to Bowel Moments. The podcast sharing real talk about the realities of IBD. Served on the rocks. This week, we talked to Ashley Mann. Ashley was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when she was 20, but she experienced symptoms well before that. We talked to her about what it was like being a competitive cheerleader with active inflammatory bowel disease. We talked to her about what she refers to as taking every medication on the market and navigating countless surgeries and now living with a permanent ostomy. We talked to her about managing her disease while moving frequently with her husband's military career. And we talked to her about navigating the military healthcare system. And finally, we talked to her about making healthcare decisions that are best for you, regardless of the opinions of everybody else in your life. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bowel Moments. This is Robin. Hey, guys. This is Alicia, and we are so excited to have our guest, Ashley Mann, on with us. Ashley, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Ashley, we are very excited to hear your story, but our very first unprofessional question for you is, what are you drinking? Well, I actually went full on, and I made a a vodka and elderflower liqueur martini (gasps) with lemon juice. Oh, that sounds lovely. Oh, wow. Yes. My husband makes them for me because I don't do it very well. Oh, that's so sweet. Robin, what about you? I had a very long drive yesterday. I'm visiting family right now. And so I'm I'm drinking coffee, but I am at home, which at home for me is New Orleans visiting my family. So I'm getting to drink my New Orleans coffee, which makes me happy. I'm also drinking coffee, but I supplemented my coffee with a brownie. And so I'm living it high, really? high life over here. Ashley, next question for you is, tell us your IBD story. What brings you into our community? So I was diagnosed in 2012 when I was 20. I was in college. I was a full-time student. I was a college cheerleader. I was working full-time. And it just got to the point where I needed to go in and got checked. And my very first colonoscopy, I was diagnosed with Crohn's when I woke up. And since then, I've had to have pretty much every medication on the market. And then also, I got a temporary ileostomy in 2015, which we ended up making permanent in 2016. So I've been a permanent ostomy since then. And I've had countless revisions. Now mine is on my left side instead of my right side. And I'm pretty close to short bowel syndrome, but I'm just over the line, thankfully. So since then, I've been had to do TPN three or four times. I got down to about 70 pounds and it took me years to build back up. And so now I'm actually healthier than I have been in over 10 years. So I'm finally getting back to kind of enjoying some more of the life I've been finding to have for the past 10 years, eating relatively normally. My output's pretty regular. So now I can actually live a, a, a pretty normal life. Okay. That is the shortest synopsis we've ever had of what had to be the most dramatic and traumatic, like 11 years of someone's life, pretty much ever. I mean, we get people on the show that are like, well, don't worry. I have the cliff's notes of my story. You know, don't worry about it. But that was like the super cliff's notes. And even in the questionnaire that we send out, I would have never been like, I am about to start crying right now just (laughs) because of all of the things that I am imagining that you went through. Literally, I am tearing up imagining what you went through just based on that two-minute synopsis. Not even two minutes. That was a minute. The minute synopsis that you just gave us. They said keep it short, so I did. Here's the thing. Alicia and I are usually like, don't keep it too short because then we don't have any place to go. I could ask you a million questions right now. I'm I'm just like floored by how you were able to just condense that into a minute. I just, I'm floored. 
And I got yeah, a really so good elevator speech. <laughs> yeah, sure. So pre-diagnosis, I guess, would be the best way to start. I've never really had a solid stool in my life that I remember. It was normal for me at that point. But progressively, I started having accidents out. I used to carry clothes. My mom would have to buy me clothes almost every time I'd leave the house. I would end up pooping my pants and, and need stuff. And I got to the point where I was really dehydrated. So I would pass out a lot. And so my mom got really good. We called it trust falls. Basically, she just kind of caught me. Um, so she had been telling me for years that I needed to get it checked, but because it was normal to me, I really didn't know. So I just kind of fought it. And then as it started to get more symptomatic, I fought harder against it. And until the point I went to, I was in the rock opera and we were able to go to France for two weeks to perform. And I was really concerned that <laughs> my roommate would notice my bathroom. And then, you know, I, I, in college, I would do my homework in this the bathroom. This is your concern? In all of this, you're, this is your concern? Yeah, this is, yeah. This is how we are. This is how we are. Yeah. It was just, you Continue. know, she's going to notice. I'm in there for 30, 45 times a day. I'm, I mean, I would do homework in the bathroom. I left my laptop in the bathroom. I had a bucket next to the toilet that I could throw up into while I was pooping. My mom would bring me Gatorades. I mean, that was my life. So then I was like, well, she's going to know. Like, it's a tiny bathroom in France, but she's going to know. And so I had to have that conversation with her. And then she was like, have you ever gotten it checked? <laughs> and I was like, no, I haven't. And so eventually after I got back from, from France and uh, talked to my primary care, who I'd been seeing, we'd been there since I was in the second grade. So she knew me. She's like, why did you never bring it up before? And sent me straight to a GI who went, sent me straight to a colonoscopy. And when I woke up, he was like, yeah, yeah, this is pretty bad. And, and you're potentially going to need surgery pretty quickly. And I did about a year later. So my mom was very happy that I finally got checked. <laughs> but you know, she was my kind of main person there. My dad was kind of in and out uh, country working. And so she was really my main support system and went through the entire thing with me. She's been lockstep. I, I say my, my family and my mom and my husband specifically have Crohn's by proxy because they're so close to it. And they've been so involved in all of the different aspects and they deal with all of the physical and emotional things that I do, but also that they have to go through trying to support me. So yeah, I, I feel like caregivers are really not. So I kind of say they have part of my diagnosis that contact boxing because they're close to it. And they have been from the beginning. Thankfully, they have a great relationship now that they've developed through hospital stays and they would tag team in the hospitals and bring alcohol up for each other to help out because it would get stressful on two week stays. And um, my parents come out anytime I call. My husband called them a couple of times saying, hey, she just really needs to see her dad and showed up the next day. It's been great having their support in all of it. And my husband decorates my bags for me. He draws on them and decorates my masterpiece with duct tape and makes custom ones. So you know, they're just, they're a huge part of all of it. It's not just me, but they still, and my husband used to help set up my TPN. My mom used to help set up my TPN. They're the only way I've ever gotten through it, really. I love that. This is going to take us on a slightly different path here, but like, how are you a cheerleader when you're going to the bathroom 45? Like, there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of jumping and things. Like, I feel like mm -hmm. that is not conducive. Those two yeah. don't go together in my mind. How did you manage that? I was a competitive cheerleader my whole life in high school cheerleader. And so it just was a natural kind of progression. And I would control what I ate and just like not eat or eat very little before or things like that and playing around that and go back and right before a, you know, a game or a performance and then go right after. Take a lot of emodium. <laughs> basically just eating the emodium like candy. But it became so normal, I could almost just regulate it a little for those times. And because you're used to the stress and the pressure 
doesn't really add a lot to it because it becomes your normal. So it didn't really affect me as far as emotions that way because I was so comfortable doing it. Got it. I mean, yeah, it just, I was like, I don't know how you're managing to jump around without there being some sort of accidents happening. So that's with pads, like pad liners in my okay. underwear too, in case I had leaks or things like that. If it was a little bit longer for like an entire day where you're going to be out on the court, mm-hmm. but you get breaks, you get to go in during quarters and I just go back and drink a lot of Gatorade. Got it. Okay. Sorry. Little side path coming no, back around. So you have your very first surgery. This is in your 20s. When 20. You're di- 20. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have your first surgery when you're 20. There's a lot between first surgery just diagnosed and short bowel, which is now mm-hmm. just 11 years later. So talk a little bit mm-hmm. about, you know, first surgery was a resection probably. Yeah. I had my ileocecal valve removed. That was where most of my scar tissue and disease was. So they took that part out, put me back together. And then well, my parents, it was like my intestines were like lead pipes because they were so damaged. They weren't squishy anymore. So it was a lot of scar tissue. So that I kind of started getting me used to the idea that surgery was going to be something else I would have to do again, potentially. And they were right. <laughs> um, so eventually we did the temporary ostomy while I was living in Texas. I had been married for about six months when I got my first temporary ostomy. And so that was quite a challenge to a new relationship on top of everything else. How do you start a marriage and be intimate when you've got something right there? But he was great about it. And I responded pretty well to the temporary ostomy. Um, I had a few issues. So we had to do some minor revisions at the beginning. We, I originally had loop ileostomy. We had to turn to end ileostomy because I was still pooping through my rectum. And that worked a lot better because of the stricturing in my disease process and a lot of the old scar tissue and active inflammation. I had to have a lot of revisions to the stoma site and to kind of right behind wherever the stoma was because that's unfortunately where I would develop the strictures. So I had a lot of minor revisions over the years. And then we finally got to the point towards 2016, I had a fantastic surgeon in Arizona, Dr. Fonsom, and he was like, okay, this is not working. We're just keeping cutting. It's not going to, it's not going to work. So we need to just make this permanent and get a good healthy piece of intestine and get something fresh. And at that time, he told me I would never be able to reconnect. So I might as well go ahead and take my rectum because it would just save me another surgery later on to just kind of do it all at once. And so we did everything, sorry, but the whole thing. And that's when we, we made it permanent. And he told me that. And about four days later, I was in the OR <laughs> and getting it done right before Christmas. So I spent Christmas in the hospital. <laughs> we had our own Charlie Brown for the Christmas tree that has been brought up. For us. So I had my first Christmas in the hospital and it was a it was a great decision. I noticed immediately that things started getting better. After the recovery, I could eat things more. I almost cried the first time I went to a movie theater and sat through an entire movie because I'd never done it before. And my husband had to get up and go to the bathroom, which I thought was hilarious. But I had got to sit there and watch the whole movie. And it, I still to this day, it's one of those moments I look back on and I go, I made the right choice, no matter what else. That moment solidified that for me and for my family, because my mom was really concerned about me making it permanent. She was not on board at the beginning, but very quickly she got on board when she saw the change. And so those kind of moments helped my family to feel more comfortable with a choice because it was the first choice she wasn't really involved in. I was married now. I was in a different state now. And so she hadn't met the surgeon or talked to the surgeon, been to pre-op appointments where she'd been involved and been my primary caregiver at that point up until then. So it was a lot of different turmoil and permanent and terrifying term. You know, it, at this point, she knew I could change my mind, which is freedom for a parent for their child that they can fix it. But you take that away and that's 
that's not what anybody wanted for me until it happened. And then everybody was like, yep, we're on board. Let's keep going. And so that was great. I've had a few revisions, quite a few <laughs> revisions since then for the same reasons. I've had bowel obstructions, stricturing disease, active inflammation. Um, my intestines are still like lead pipes. My surgeons have called my parents out a couple of times just because of it took me so long to get diagnosed. There was so much damage because I just ignored it that it was irreversible at that point. We were just working with what I had done because I didn't know. And then up until a couple of years ago, when we got to North Carolina, finally found a surgeon that was like, we need to move it to the other side. It's on the right side. We've cut at this spot for years with the same area. We've made it bigger. We've made it smaller. We've pulled the different intestines through. This isn't working. So let's move it. And that changed everything again for me. And I haven't had to have a surgery since. And that's the first time I went over a year without having surgery since I was diagnosed. So that has been kind of the, the change that's given me my life back. Because now that that's stable and my, my awesome is functioning properly, then I can focus on nutrition. Then I could gain weight. Then I could start eating. Then I could start exercising and start doing things I wanted to do, like going back to school. So it's been another kind of life-changing moment that you dread. It's a huge difference. And I woke up from surgery with this gaping hole on one side and this new stoma on the other. And we're having to pack the wound. I mean, I was, I was not in a very good place mentally seeing that the first time and having to have to deal with that. But then you look at one of those other moments. I look back now and I go, it was worth it. It's OK. And this is why, because it's actually given me what I've been fighting for. So that's kind of where we're at now. Wow. That's a lot. That's a heck of a lot. One of the things that you and I were chatting with before Robin joined us was, you know, you've mentioned in Texas and Arizona and here and there. One of the things perhaps you didn't mention is that the reason why you've been in all these places and you told me you were you've lived in nine states. Yeah, eight or nine, I think. In, with, in nine We've been years. Nine years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe explain to folks <laughs> maybe explain why. why. We don't just love moving. <laughs> and also how what like how have you managed your care because sure. of that? My husband's in the army. So we met in high school in Florida and then he joined the army later after we became best friends and we got married while he was stationed in Hawaii. And then our first duty station was Texas. We've died in Arizona, Colorado. We're now in North Carolina. Done a few more in between that I don't remember. And I've gone back home a few times to Florida to be with my parents when he deployed so that I wasn't alone. But we're hoping North Carolina's kind of permanent, which we you never know with the military. But it definitely makes disease management a huge <laughs> problem. And the Army has programs that are supposed to help family members and spouses with certain concerns. Um, with moving, but it, it really just makes sure that whatever duty station your spouse gets assigned to has the ability to care for you. But beyond that, it doesn't really create a structure to help once you're in the process and once you get there. So for the most part, you have a primary care doctor who is on post and they manage most of your care and they provide all of the referrals so that your insurance company can pay for whatever care you need. And then you're sent to a specialty care, like I'm sent to GI at the local military installation. And from there, those doctors decide whether it's something they can manage at their clinic or whether they'll need to send you out for specialty care, which with my complicated case is always, yes, I need to get extra care. Um, so then I'm sent to the closest facility that can handle or that's been created for IBD. So here I'm at UNC, which has a great program and great surgeons and staff and actually have a whole GI surgical recovery floor, which is heaven. 
And so that's been really great here. Unfortunately, in some of the areas, I don't have as close access. It'll be three or four hours away to a, a specialty hospital. And then, as we all know, getting appointments and things are very difficult. And when you move every couple of years, by the time you get everything set up and approved through the insurance and paid for, and then met at your next appointment and you get everything ready, you're lucky to get one appointment with that specialty provider before you're ending up moving again. There's not a lot of opportunity for them to actually give you the care that they want to and they can. You're just kind of managing in between a lot of steroids, a lot of steroids as a band-aid in order to get me through it. I've had to really learn to advocate for myself over the years. I have started preparing when I know where we're going to get to know in advance kind of what station you're getting to next. I start researching the area and what's around. And so that once I get there, I know exactly what I need to ask my initial primary care for at the first appointment. I let them know these are the types of things I'm going to need. I need this to be set up very quickly. And then they usually sign me a case manager, which helps with the process of speeding up those referrals and, and getting that stuff going so that you don't have to wait as long. And then just calling and bugging the crap out of the specialty place and saying, no, I, I really need an appointment right now. I'm going to call every day and ask you if anybody's canceled. And I'm going to keep calling and I'm going to, and you do. And then eventually you'll find somebody that wants to, you know, that can help or that sees something and they all want to help you. So it's just explaining your situation and getting to the right person. But I've just become very, very comfortable with that and having to articulate very well and clearly my needs and, and ensuring that I get them because nobody else will. And that's been super important with all of the moving. Keeping really thorough medical records is also great because trying to get that stuff sent over takes forever. So having an electronic copy um, before I leave a duty station, that way when I, as soon as I arrive, I have the ability to provide it. And then as soon as the referral is accepted at whatever clinic, even before I'm necessarily made an appointment, I can start sending the medical records over so that by the time I get an appointment, they're already there waiting on the doctor. So that's been really important to, to make sure I have lists of what medications I'm allergic to, what I'm currently taking, things that a, a more detailed description of why I failed medications when I took them, what the reactions were, whether we tried them again, and those types of things. So that those initial questions that you would have at a GI appointment, you can kind of get out of the way and go straight to the, all right, now we need to do this. These are my current concerns. And so that helps kind of just get some of the backstory out of the way when you meet new doctors and just a really thick and thorough medical history with you at all times. That's very, very smart and very proactive of you to do, but I, it's a lot of work. Like I just, you know, like you're all of a sudden you just said, I was like, Christ, that's a lot of work. Yeah. yeah you're already <laughs> yes. sick, but you're not going to get better if you don't. So you don't have your choice. And you're not going to get what you need from that doctor. Like you said, you know, you're, you're going to have to spend a lot more time giving a history. And frankly, you don't usually have that much time with them, unfortunately. So yeah. No, I couldn't give it. It's actually medicine. good advice for anybody who's going to a new doctor, yeah. by the way. I learned the hard way of trying to just get records sent over like, hey, this is going to be no problem. And then two visits in my record still hadn't been sent to my new doctor. And so I do that anytime I'm going to see, even if it's a referral to a different specialist, yeah. I still just have my electronic record available to send myself just in case. Yeah. Right. I kind of like reading them too, frankly, like I kind of like having access to see what they've written and like, you know, kind of get some additional intel because they you don't always have a lot of time with the doctor. There might be things they put in the notes that you haven't necessarily covered. So yeah. Or you can also I've had a couple of times during hospitalizations where people, nurses and things have put things in that I don't agree with about me. 
and things. I was, I don't usually bring this up too often, but I was accused of self-harming to the point where I had cameras in the rooms with me because they didn't believe what was going on, even though they watched me on camera and the symptoms still persisted for quite a while. I had to seek outside psychological testing in order to have a proof that I didn't have Munchausen's disease. So I went through extensive uh, therapy and testing in order to get that proven, documented, and had to turn that report in with personal mental information to prove to the hospitals there that I uh, wasn't doing that and I didn't have Munchausen's so that I could get the cameras out of my room because I was accused of, of that. And so treatment kind of came to a standstill for quite a few times because they just would always say, well, you're just doing it to yourself. They write you off. You're just you're just here for attention because uh, they couldn't find the source of my bleeding at the time. And I was eating blood transfusions weekly, but they couldn't figure out where I was bleeding from because there was so much inflammation and congestion in my intestines. So it was an extremely traumatic experience that I don't go into a lot of detail about, but I don't shy away from because you have to read your medical records. You have to know what they're accusing you of and what the nurses are telling the doctors and putting in that stuff because it follows you, especially when you're moving, because that's the first impression to the next doctor. I refused to have something like that be the representation of me and to the point where I had to go way outside of what I should have had to do in order to prove that I was actually experiencing the disease symptoms I was experiencing to the extent I was experiencing them and I wasn't exaggerating for attention or self-harming yeah it's something that you can track if you so for me I could find the initial complaint it was a nighttime resident that didn't think I was in as much pain as I was in and I was bleeding actively and she was like well she's making herself bleed from the stoma and so then that followed me then they put the camera in to watch you and you have to have somebody in your room and you can't ever be alone and you can't get up to go to the bathroom by yourself and it's extremely invasive and it's extremely disheartening I mean it, it destroyed me I wouldn't seek medical care to the point I had septic shock because I was so worried about going in and being accused of that and not getting the care and not being treated correctly because of the way I was mistreated by the medical community. And I understand that nurses and doctors, once they see that flag, have to respect it. So it's not, I don't always fault them. Some of them handled it improperly and didn't treat me respectfully afterwards because I'm still a human, whether you think I'm doing it to myself or not. But those initial doctors caused all that trauma and all that heartache and created this huge gap for me between my ability to have relationships with my medical team because they didn't like what I was saying and didn't couldn't find out what was going wrong. And it's inexcusable. And it they don't realize sometimes the impact of what they say and what they do. But putting that in my medical records, being able to go back and track it, I could follow that and I could see and then I could counter it. Then I could act against it. But if I had never done that, I wouldn't have really known what steps I needed to take to get that removed, which is now removed from my record. You can still see where it was removed. Um, I still have to address it with your doctors that go back and look at my chart. But all of those accusations and all of that is gone. So it's no longer following me around. But it took me years and it still impacts me today when I consider going to the ER. And it probably always will for the rest of my life, even though it hasn't happened, you know, for quite a few years now. Yeah, it's extremely traumatic. Oh, Ashley, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and not to mention the added expense that you had to go to to go get all of this other testing and therapy to prove that it wasn't the case. But I think that's what's so difficult about these diseases is that so much of it is internal. And like, yeah, you Mm -hmm. know, like you're you're in pain. Well, pain is not something that's yeah, you Mm -hmm. you can't see it. It's not like it's a something on your skin that they could go. Oh, yeah, that's a burn. And boy, that sucks, you know. And so it is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. 
one years of treatment means you have a buildup to pain medication. So the initial yes. doses aren't going to work, unfortunately. So yeah, I'm requiring more pain medication. That's because you guys won't treat the source. So it, it all, it's a big cycle. It feeds on itself. And the mistrust yeah. between patients and doctors is detrimental. And the doctors probably don't even think about it. They don't remember me. They don't know what they did. And I still remember specific things that they told me. I mean, word for word that cut me so deeply, I will remember them for the rest of my life. And they don't even remember who I am. And that's, it's just sad. They throw their words away and I can't, I can't get rid of them. I don't know if I've even mentioned this on the show before, but I can't tell you the last time I went to the emergency room. I don't go to the emergency room. I mean, if I was like, I had a broken arm or, you know, got in a car accident or something, I would go to the emergency room. But for my IBD, Mm -hmm. no, I do not go to the emergency room. Just a quick caveat that we're not ad- advising people not to go to the emergency room, though. Not just, at all. Just <laughs> no, it's <laughs> because, horrible. Yes, it is. It's a difficult thing, but yes, you. There are times when, again, like you're going into sepsis, that you definitely should go to yes. the emergency room. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, the thoughts expressed on this show are the thoughts of myself, of the guests, of Alicia, of Ashley. They are our thoughts and our opinions and our personal experiences, which we also put in the show notes, like not medical recommendations. But I've also been not. Yes, please, you know, talk to your doctors, your whatever. I, but I've also been living with this thing for 23 years. Mm -hmm. And so I'm also been in therapy for two years, which I, you know, have said on a recent show that aired for our, our EMDR episode where I said like, this show has pretty much followed my therapy journey and my medical, you know, you've lived, relived my medical trauma with me, everybody, you know, so it's just 23 years is a long time to live with something and go through this and I can understand why you don't go to the emergency room too. I mean, it yeah. is it it is a place where a lot of times it's you're not dealing with specialists. They don't know your story, and so you're not probably right. really getting what you need. Exactly. Uh, but you know, there are definitely times where you know that it's warranted to go there, and that at least to facilitate you getting into the hospital so that you're getting to the right. person you need. Right. So yeah, it, but it's, again, it, but I'm it not is, saying it's a difficult I, place. Yeah, I'm not saying I don't go to the emergency room at all. I'm saying I don't personally go to the emergency room for IBD. I would probably message my GI on the patient portal mm-hmm. or, you know, something like that. Which is a great and... first step no matter what before going into the ER. Yes. It is. But there are times yes. where you don't really have a choice. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. There are times that I probably absolutely should have gone Same. to the ER. Uh, 100%. There's mm-hmm. a specific time that my husband was like, I am never going to let you do this to me again. I am taking you to the ER. I'm not going to listen to you. The, mm-hmm. If this ever happens again, I am not listening to you and I'm taking you straight to the ER. That has happened at least twice over the past 14 years. Was that the time you ate apples? Yes. That is Ooh. the time. One of those times is the time that I ate a- and apples. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He I'm said, gonna, I'm never letting you do it again. Yeah. I'm going to switch gears a little bit because otherwise we'll just start talking about ERs. Actually, I'm curious because you're the only guest that we've had on thus far that has actually gotten their care as part of the military system. Okay. So like as in actual doctors that see the treat family members that are like just the military like medical system. Mm-hmm. As part of that, you also get access to people outside of that closed system because, you know, not they can't have specialists in every place kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about the differences that you've seen between sort of private healthcare or like you know, commercial healthcare and the military systems or what was that like? 
I didn't expect it to be such a large difference. You always hear about it, that the, you know, the medical stuff in, in military is different, but it really is. A lot of active duty doctors also move around quite a bit. So they don't have the luxury of the long-term personal relationships with the people that they're seeing, especially in primary care situations. They get moved as quickly as the rest of the military does. So it changes a lot. Currently, I have an assigned PCM that I've never actually met. I just see people in the clinic, um, which happens a lot, actually, you know, which is great. They have other people around, but yeah. So you don't get that relationship that is really important for chronic illness. It's not as big of a thing for people that are healthy because you just go in once a year for your physical or, or whatever, and it's no big deal. So that's, that's different. And then the training is very different. The approach in military training to medication and to and the medical field is military. It's not civilian care always. They get both, of course. They're all actual doctors. They go through med school. But any further training is specific to you know their job descriptions and what they're going to be assisting soldiers with, which I don't ever experience, thank God. So they don't have to use that expertise on me, but they don't always have the same expertise, especially in conditions like chronic illnesses that are, are you know, very specific and ostomies outside of kind of needing to create one or, you know, that type of, of thing, managing them. So there's some things that they're not as familiar with and so you kind of have to do a quick one-on-one education a little bit sometimes with them on some of the terminologies and some of the medications. Oh, I don't see a large difference in a lot of the nursing. It's very, very similar. I mean, they're really amazing and they're great for people like me that don't have good veins because they're used to dealing with patients that are a little bit more difficult or doing it in different situations. So that part of it's great. And there's always a willingness to, in a lot of times I saw in, in private care, you kind of would get written off a little sometimes and, and the urgency behind your treatment wasn't really there. There's military doctors approach it. They want you to get you in and out, but they want it to be done. They don't want you to come back. And so it's kind of that let's get to the point instead of let's beat around the bush. And so I really enjoy that um, a lot. And I've also seen a huge willingness to learn in the military doctors because they don't necessarily get the same experience from other people. And so it's it's great from that side of it. But the lack of specific understanding is sometimes very difficult. And the patient care side of things is very different because they're officers. So if they're dealing with an enlisted soldier or things like that, you know, they're nice people, but the tone and the things that they, you know, the way that they approach conversations with people, it's not the uh, warm and fuzzy, let me make you feel good about the diagnosis. It's, this is the way it is, deal with it. Like, <laughs> so it can be a little bit abrupt, but I enjoy that. I'm, I'm a really straightforward person, but it's a little bit times when you just, they just come out and, and they're just like, well, this is what it's going to be. We're going to do this and that's it. And they turn around to leave. Because they're not used to people arguing with them. So it's a fun dynamic, depending on the person. Then we get civilian providers that work inside of the, the hospitals, too. And so there's a kind of a good mix. In the emergency rooms, I found it's really great because they're used to trauma. They're used to the in and out. So it does take a long time because a lot of people go to the emergency room as a primary care, unfortunately, in the military because it's covered. But a lot of the doctors, once you're back or, or once I triage, I'm usually taking rest quickly and they're they're great about the the kind of urgency again of, of, of treatment and the, the way it runs the processes in the ER are great it's it's like clockwork a lot of times if you do a lot of military people working together especially that know each other really well I think the best experience I've had 
was in Texas. I had a GI, Dr. Patel, Dr. Angus Patel, and he was amazing. And the whole the whole team, the whole GI team, his you know, his other doctors and my nurses were fantastic and all about making sure I had what I need and, and really supporting me to the point. I mean, they would open up their clinic and let me come in and get fluids rather than having to go to the ER and stay open late. And, and do things like that for me. I mean, the nursing staff is fantastic. And he was a really unique military doctor because he had so much experience with IBD and he had so much um, passion for it. And he was a really funny guy. And the way he approached the relationship with his patients was almost a, a friendship, a mentorship, I guess I would say, of this is what I think you should do, but let's what are what do you want this to, what do you want from this what are you expecting from treatment what are the things that are most important to you and i'd never been asked that up until that point and so it was really eye-opening to a way a relationship between a doctor and a patient could work and should work and really set my expectation going forward because i knew what it would look like if we could actually get on the same page and work together towards the same goals instead of me trying to convince them to get on my side and so it was it was great it was a unique experience for me with military doctors but it was really kind of life-changing for me having that whole team and him especially kind of teaching me as I was going on so it's really luck of the draw with military doctors <laughs> when you get there and the right person gets assigned to you and, and you can work together the way he and I did it was it was magic well, and what we discovered before we started recording is that the Dr. Patel she references Anish Patel, who has been on our show. And so, yeah, uh, yeah we're we're a big fan of, of Dr. Patel as well. And he does have a very unique way of approaching care and is incredibly knowledgeable. And so I'm glad you had such a great experience with him because we have not been to see him as, you know, folks who need his care, but he's pretty darn funny and very, very smart. So I'll make sure I link to his show if anybody wants to listen to Dr. Patel tell his side of this. <laughs> he didn't mention you, obviously, but... <laughs> know him too. We are breaking with our usual MO, everyone, to ask Ashley our final question because it's not going to be our final question. We've mentioned a couple of times that we send everybody a questionnaire and uh, the way that Ashley answered her final question, which you're all about to hear, I just loved it so much that I want to be able to ask her some follow-up questions on it. So we get to do what we want because it's our show and we're going to ask this question now. So Ashley, what is the one thing that you want the IBD community to know? So I, the way I wrote it, I had to read it before this to remind myself once you brought it up. You know, I think the initial response for most people, and I found myself going to it also, was that you're not alone, which is great and it's true and it's important. But for me, it's not the most important thing. It's that there's no wrong way to live with IBD. There are countless treatment options and medications and not choosing medication, surgeries, diets. I mean, it's extensive in the way that you want to treat this disease. And the whole world is going to have an opinion, your doctors, your friends, your family, everybody. But it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Take all of that advice in, especially from trusted medical professionals and your immediately close circle. But the way you choose to go about it has to fit you and you have to form it to fit you. You don't have to change you and your goals and your life to fit the way that people think you should live with this. It's however you want and it's the right way if it's the way that you chose. And it doesn't really matter what the consequences of those choices are because they're yours to deal with. So you're the one that gets to make that choice of what you're going to tolerate and what you're not. 
And I think people get really caught up in, I have to do what my doctor said. I have to do what my parents tell me. I have to do what my spouse believes is right. And they're all important opinions that should be considered. But at the end of the day, if you're not comfortable, if you're not willing to take that risk, if you're not willing, then don't. It's not wrong. It's valid. It's correct. And it's the way that you want to live your life, which you get to decide. And that's the most important thing to me. First of all, standing ovation. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think people also get caught up in wanting to make the right decision. And it can be overwhelming getting advice from so many different people because it's going to be conflicting. What your medical team is going to tell you is going to be different than what your mom is going to tell you, which may be different than what your spouse is going to tell you, which could be different than what your sister is going to tell you. But then what about that Facebook group? And then what about your dietitian? But then what about, you know, if you go to church or if you're in a support group? I mean, like, you know, what about the naturopath or if you get acupuncture? Like, but then there's this brand new product that's going to cure it. And they say to do something, you know, it's just like every single avenue is going to tell you something different and it can be overwhelming. And I think that sometimes we also get bogged down by wanting to make the right choice. And the way that you worded your response to that question is just the right choice for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the right choice for you. And there's going to be a risk no matter what path you take. Taking the medication, not taking the medication. Taking an infusion over a pill. I mean, taking the surgery, not taking the surgery. It's always a risk. You get to decide how much you're risking, what you're risking. And you don't have to get approval from anybody else. And that was really hard for me, especially when my mom wasn't okay with me getting my permanent ostomy when I did. And I know there was a lot of emotional stuff she was going through too with me just being married and Travis kind of stepping in as my primary caregiver. But that was the first time I, I was against my mom in my diagnosis process. She'd always been 100% behind me. And she was. She you know, said, whatever I, I want to do. And she came for the surgery and supported me through it. But it was really, really hard for me to pick what I felt was best over that extremely important and valued opinion to me that had been right so many times when I'd been wrong. <laughs> so it, it was hard, but it was a choice I felt like I had to make. And I've gone against doctors countless times now, I mean, to the point of leaving AMA, because I didn't think I needed to be in that facility at that time. And it's a very difficult thing because it's not socially acceptable to go against the grain. It's not socially acceptable for someone to speak out against the medical community and go against the doctor, to go against family members and to make the unpopular choice. I've turned down treatment options. I've chosen not to have treatment in, in times because the medications would give me more risky side effects or different side effects that I wasn't willing to deal with, but I was okay dealing with the side effects that I was currently experiencing. So it's it's a very hard thing emotionally to do, but it's empowering and it ends up being the right choice every time because I'm okay with whatever I have to sacrifice because I, I made it. I'm not dealing with the consequences of my doctor's choice. I'm not dealing with consequences of somebody else. And it it's a very, very hard stand to take every single time you take it, no matter how many times you do it. But it does get a little bit easier once you see the results of those choices and emotionally the benefits and mentally, like you said, getting overwhelmed 
you start to release some of that. And then you start to feel the guilt initially of making that choice and the, and the second guessing and the questioning. And then it starts to come to fruition and you see the results of it and all of that melts away. And all of a sudden you have this life that you chose. So even if it's not perfect, even if there's negative aspects, you picked it so you can deal with it because you wanted to. It's a risk versus rewarding. It's a balance between what's healthily, you know, physically for you healthy and what's emotionally for you healthy and spiritually, like you were talking about. Those paths that you take are extremely individual, even when you're married. My husband's been behind all of my decisions always, but we've disagreed at times. And it's very hard to be a partner in everything and dissent. But it's my choice. It's me. And, and it feels selfish to prioritize yourself, but it's not. It's essential to your mental survival. And a lot of times you're physical too, because I've been right when doctors have been wrong more times than I can count. And I've said no to things that have saved my life. So instinct and what feels right for you after consideration of all of the aspects and not in a emotional situation in an appointment where the doctor makes you angry or, or, you know, when you're outside of those moments and you can clearly look at everything and see what you want and see what's best for you. Don't deviate. It's going to be hard, but it's so necessary and so rewarding. Alicia and I are very opinionated on this show. <laughs> and we uh, share those opinions openly. But hopefully everyone who is listening understands that it is with this thought in mind that we want you to have the information available to you in order for you to make the right decisions for yourself. So we're going to keep sharing our opinions because that's who we are as people. But also it is with this frame of mind. This is what we're trying to do. We want you to have the information. We want you to understand other people's stories, what they've gone through, why they've made the decisions and choices that they've made. And hopefully it will help you feel less alone, but also better equipped to make the next best right choice for you. On the nose, Robin. I feel like we just have to like drop the mic and be done now. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, I really feel like there's probably 200 more questions we could ask you, but unfortunately our time with you has ended. So thank you so much for yes, the wisdom you. you shared and all of your story that you did share. And I know there's more, but thank you so much for joining us. We thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you to everybody who listens. We appreciate you guys as well. And yes. cheers, thank guys. Cheers. cheers, everybody. Hi, this is Ashley. If you enjoyed talking with us on this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it with your friends.